This is Ozarks at Large for March 24th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. Matthew Moore will be along with me in a bit. We're going to start off with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. Michael, welcome back to Ozarks at Large. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm here in the the mill in downtown Fort Smith, the works, workspace. In fact, I'm in one of their quiet rooms. So you can conveniently have a couple rooms where if you have to do an interview or Zoom, they have a quiet room. So that's where I am. And, and I'm sure my mother's um, probably would have wished I'd have had a quiet room uh, <laughs> many decades ago for me to stay in. But here I am now. Can you see the chandelier from where you are? No. no okay. like, this is a small little boxed-in heavy door. They've got a blanket on the wall. I mean, it's they thought it through. It's great for audio. I, and people may I think, hope it is anyway. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. People may think I'm kidding, but they do have this vintage chandelier that's one of the um the the little peculiarities that uh really makes the mill shine. Yeah, it's an amazing. It's a east part of the East Coast um old theater from the East Coast that they took apart and put together one little piece at a time and it sets the mood when you first walk in. You realize you're not just in any typical work shared workspace. Arkansas is not any typical place for tourists, and more and more people are rediscovering that, aren't they? Yes, and um, the 2020, you know, obviously, tourism and the hospitality sector, hotels and restaurants really took a battering 2020 during the COVID pandemic, but surprisingly began to bounce back last year in 2021, or in 2021 began to bounce back. You didn't, you know, there was a lot of talk about, well, is it just, it just kind of kind of bounce back and return to normal or and there was some talk about what what's called and I think you've heard it revenge tourism where people are like you know damn it I can't get out now and I'm gonna get out no matter if I can afford it or not you know I'm getting out so so you didn't know how much that impact would have but Arkansas has not only fully re- recovered from that that pandemic loss but they're setting set new records in 2022 for example uh, the state's tourism tax, 2% tourism tax, set a new record. Uh, it was up just a little over $24 million, up 17% compared to 2021. And and the other thing is that for the first year ever, every month of the, tur- the 2% tourism tax in Arkansas topped $1 million for the first time. So that was that was pretty incredible. And so, and there was a 17, we survey 17 cities in Arkansas. We, we look at their both revenue in uh, hotel and, and restaurant revenue. And there was an almost 15% increase among those 17 cities. Uh, there was a 6% increase in the gain in the monthly average of Arkansas tourism industry for the year in 2022 compared to 2021. So just an amazing year to, to give you some idea of that. Those 17 cities are hospitality tax collections. These are these are big dollars. Um, the tax revenue in those 17 cities, the combined revenue was just under 66 million. Like I said, that was up almost 15 percent compared to 2021, and the collections are up uh, over 23 percent, over 23 percent compared to the pre-pandemic year of 2019. So, the industry is on a is on a roll. The sector set a it began 2023 by setting a new employment record in January of 127,800 jobs. So, you know, that was a PE sector that took the biggest hit. Fortunately, it's it's rebounded and then some. Any reason to think that uh, the tourism industry won't remain strong and perhaps continue to grow? I No, every, and the folks we talked to, um, in fact, we I talked to a couple of folks. They were surprised that the revenue among the 17 cities we surveyed wasn't a little higher, and they were surprised that the job gains weren't a little higher. Look, I think barring some big national economic, you know, big oh no, I think it's going to continue. I mean, consumer spend the consumer spending numbers uh, continue to be strong. We are seeing a little bit of an uptick in consumer debt. I don't know if that'll put some damp uh, put a damper on travel. And again, Arkansas is, is well situated because there's a lot of natural tourism, there's a lot of outdoor adventure tourism. And right now, nationwide, that's the big thing. That's the all the cool kids are doing that. So I'll be very surprised if 2023 dips below uh, 2022. In fact, I, I think it's going to continue to post increases even over what was a very robust 2022. 
There is an interesting phrase in one of the stories you can find at talkbusiness.net right now, and that phrase is Project X. What can you tell me about Project X? Well, I don't know what Project X is, but it's um, it's a project being pushed by a developer. Uh, many people know him, Benny Westfall, here in Fort Smith. And in the spirit of full disclosure, Benny Westfall is an owner. He's an investor uh, in talk business and politics, but he's a non-managing investor. So, uh, But he, he is an owner. I want to get that out there. But he has pitched a project. He owns the property that a former Best Buy building used to be in, and then there's a near an adjacent office building that used to be an insurance office building. He is uh, pitching this proposal of a company. Now, some people think it's like a Bass Pro Shop type thing. Some people even said that's probably what it is. I don't know. I honestly do not know what it is. But the business, it's a retail component with a tourist attraction. Or it's a retail industry with a tourist attraction component. Has about, will have about 93 full-time employees with an average annual salary of 53000 which is well above the annual or the average here in the Fort Smith area. I uh, said the company will invest $12 million at the site and have around $28 million in sales per year. What he's asked for is um, unprecedented, and it's been noted. He's asking for essentially almost $5 million in sales tax abatement, or about $4.925 million. Now, sales tax abatement is common for manufacturing for a lot of different types of incentives, but it's not common for the retail sector. In fact, the city attorney, Jerry Canfield, said it's illegal according to the Arkansas Constitution. The Mr. Westfall says they're working on legislation to amend that so that it would be legal. But it's drawing a lot. It's getting a lot of traffic on our website. It's getting a lot of social media push either way. You know, some folks say, hey, this is what you have to do nowadays to attract industry. Other folks are saying that's not fair to other retail businesses that have invested money without any type of of support. So, but the, the Fort Smith Board of Directors voted six to one to approve that sales tax incentive on the, I guess it'll have to be conditioned on whether it's proven to be legal according to state law. So that well, we will yet to see how that works, but it would be a sales tax abatement. Of, it's limited to 10 years, but it, but it would be an abatement and um, we'll, we'll see. It's, 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 it'll definitely be one of the more controversial things we cover most likely that we'll cover this year that the city board um, decides on. Well, I don't know what attracted a new tap room to come to the bakery district in Fort Smith, but I applaud a new tap room at the bakery district. Yeah, it was just, um, I, from what I've been told, Derek Campbell, he owns, he and his family own the, the Washita's, which is a, a brew house, coffee bar, and tap room down in Mina. And they've been very successful with it. And after we posted the story, I didn't realize they're, they kind of have a popular following, not only in Mina, but around the state. But anyway, Derek Campbell was up in Fort Smith at a beer tasting. They they brew 18 types of different types of beers. And he was up in Fort Smith at a beer, ta- at a beer tasting and just happened to run into Griffin Hannah. Griffin's family is part of this, uh, the bakery district in downtown Fort Smith, also part of the mill, uh, which I'm sitting in now. And just a happenstance conversation. They talked about the Griffin talked about what they were doing. They had some space open. Derek talked about that they were planning on expanding, but it really, you know, wasn't the right time. Anyway, Derek took a tour of the building and just kind of said, you know, this is the right time. We think we want to do this. So their plans are now to open late summer, early fall. They don't really have a definite timeline. They're still kind of in the design and engineering aspect. It's about a three thousand square foot space in the base in the bakery district. It's called the Maple Room as part of the bakery district, but it'd be a tap room. They'd serve cocktails. They might have a limited food menu. They haven't decided on that yet, but it would be a welcome addition in terms of both food and, you know, beverage, another beverage option and in downtown Fort Smith and bring some more jobs to downtown Fort Smith and another reason to come down. So just another part, I know that the downtown Fort Smith area isn't, you know, growing as much as what you might see in some of the downtown areas in Northwest Arkansas, but fortunately it has been on a, upward growth trend in the last few years, and this uh, this is part of that. All right. Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. You can read about all of this and much more at talkbusiness.net. Michael, it's the first weekend of spring. I hope it is a good one for you. Well, yeah, just as long as we can keep the, the tornadoes away and <laughs> and, and uh, we, we've still got some time before we hit that crazy, stupid heat in August that people like you like. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to it so far. 
Thank you, Michael. Talk to you next week. A few years ago, researchers looked at data on counties with the highest proportions of enslaved people in 1860. Then they looked at modern levels of anti-Black bias in those same counties. And what it tells us is this incredibly long shadow of history. The second in a two-part series on implicit bias, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Hidden Brain tomorrow afternoon at 3 and Sunday morning at 6 on 91.3 KUAF. And still to come on our show today, how actors inhabit their roles during a play's run. Yes, it's really cool to see how these characters develop and how we embrace who they are even more and how those inform, like, new actions that we may be playing. The actors from Theater Squared's production of Sanctuary City, later this hour. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Following NIMH protocol, studies show ketamine infusion therapy can reduce suicidal ideation and is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. drkathleenwong.com for more information. Fresh from being named Best Theater of 2021 by the New York Times, Theater Squared presents Sanctuary City on stage through April 9th. This play features two teenagers struggling to navigate two kinds of unreciprocated love, the kind they feel for each other and the kind they feel as immigrants for their adopted country. 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. The electric vehicle startup Canoe recently laid off more than a dozen employees based in Bentonville. In November of 2021, the company announced they would be moving their headquarters to Bentonville. Canoe signed a 10-year lease in Bentonville in March of 2022 to occupy a new 270,000-square-foot industrial building. In May, CEO Tony Aquila hosted local media to test drive vehicles and visit what was described as an advanced manufacturing site with plans to build 23,000 vehicles a year. In a statement, Aquila told us that Canoe kept this team in Bentonville on salary for more than eight months while working to resolve the situation with the building owner. He also says they will assess the market conditions, but gave no definitive timing of when the company plans to build vehicles or move their corporate headquarters to Bentonville, but that they remain committed to have facilities in the area. March is officially Developmental Disabilities Awareness Month in Arkansas. Members of the Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities made the designation earlier this month to raise awareness and encourage Arkansans to learn more about those living with disabilities. The council's executive director, Jonathan Taylor, says they hope to break down the stigma that often surrounds Arkansans living with intellectual and developmental disabilities when they try to enter the workforce. Oftentimes when you tell somebody our company is going to start hiring people with disabilities, you imagine the most profoundly disabled person you've ever met or ever heard of. And then that becomes the template for all other people with disabilities that you're measuring them with against. And that's not always the case. You know, people with disabilities are just like everybody else. There's a continuum of talents and skills and abilities that people have. Taylor says his group is also studying ways to boost retention for companies providing direct services to adults with disabilities, an industry where the turnover rate hovers around 43 percent nationally. There are certain uh, direct service provider organizations that do a good job at retention. So we're really just interested. What are they doing? Is it recognition programs, uh, you know, career pathways and development? Are they using technology different? You know, do they have trauma-informed care and management for their teams? Taylor says the results of that study will be released this summer. What if picking up rocks could benefit your favorite library? That's kind of the idea behind tomorrow's unusual fundraiser for the Berryville Public Library. For the second consecutive year, Carroll County Stone is donating 100% of proceeds from sales of a certain kind of rock to the library. Christy Noble, who handles communications for the Berryville Public Library, says it's a simple procedure. They are offering a a uh, $20 pickup load of commercial base, which can be used for do-it-yourself projects. You can fill in potholes, whatever you would like. Um, and so you can bring your pickup out there on Saturday anytime from 8 to 2. You don't need to let us know in advance. Just come on out. We'll load you up, and uh, your $20 that you pay for your pickup load will go to the Berryville Library. She says last year's inaugural fundraiser was successful for both the library and some do-it-yourselfers. 
we had uh, one couple that actually came four different times. So they had a big project and they would come get a pickup load, take it home and unload it and come back for a second one. They, they did it four times. I think they were pretty tired at the end of the day. Fundraising continues for a new Berryville Public Library building. Noble says a recent $1 million community partnership funding grant obtained through Congressman Steve Womack's office has put the library at about 70% of its needed $3.5 million. The goal is to break ground for the new library in 2025. A docuseries centered on Onyx Coffee Lab in Rogers is earning recognition at film festivals. The series, The Road to Milan, is produced by Seattle-based studio Wildly and chronicles Onyx co-founder Andrea Allen's journey to the World Barista Championship competition in 2021. The series received the award for Best Series Episode at this month's Oregon Film Festival. We committed to going and representing the U.S. about three months before the competition started. It honestly was the shortest amount of training we've ever had. We decided to, like, scrap everything script-wise and rewrite it. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, if I'm going to be honest about it. She's a very strong competitor. She's a very strong coffee professional. Andrea Allen. Andrea Allen. Andrea Allen. She just kept pushing and kept pushing on. That's the kind of tenacity it really takes to be a champion, is you have to have that fire within you that says, I can do this. The series begins with Allen's first experience at the United States Coffee Championships almost 10 years before she entered the world stage. The Arkansas men's basketball season is over after a 25-point loss to UConn last night in Las Vegas in the NCAA tournament's round of 16. Arkansas ends the season 22-14. and 14. The Arkansas women take their own crack at moving to an Elite Eight tonight. The Razorbacks are playing Texas Tech in Bud Walton Arena tonight in the NIT. The winner moves on to the tournament's quarterfinals next week. This is Ozarks at Large. It's a spring break Friday for many people in Arkansas. But, Becca, here we are. We are because we need to do fun things to get over the fact we didn't have a spring break. That's right. That's right. I'm okay with it. Not everyone gets a spring break. I am, too. So, it's been a while since we had a Chinese carryout menu of the arts. And this is like Select One from Column A, from Column B, and Column C. You want to guess for our listeners what column A is? I'm going to guess theater. Always theater, because it's my menu. Yes. And this weekend, there's some really super cool stuff. All right. First of all, at Arkansas Public Theater in Rogers is a show called Survival of the Unfit. This is a premiere. It is. This is a world premiere. I'm going to mess up his name, because I've heard it both ways. Orin Safty, Safty who is known at APT because they've done several of his shows. He might be known to a larger audience as Moshe Softy's son. And so when he first came here with his dad, he said, I think I'll see if a theater would like to do any of my work. And Ed McClure said, why, yes, I would. That was back when it was Roger's Little Theater. And so this is his third full show, for if you count the staged reading that they started with. Here's the premise. Guy in his 30s, still living at home, might perhaps have met a girl who will get him out of that living situation and out from under his mother's thumb if his mother doesn't mess it up first. And it's really good. And I think this is one we might see on a big stage, bigger than Arkansas Public Theater. Gotcha. Opens tonight at 8 o'clock. Mr. Softy will be there tonight. So wear your good pants. 8 o'clock tomorrow night, 2 o'clock Sunday, again, the next weekend. Tickets start at $25 at ArkansasPublicTheater.org. Then there's a production of The Jungle Book. Oh, that yeah. That brings together. Oh, yeah. And I haven't seen this, and I so want to. It's Trike Theater. It's the Rave Cultural Foundation. And it's, oh, and here we go again. It was easier being an editor when I didn't have to talk. The Deharna Academy of Classical Dance. 
they're doing the Jungle Book with classical Indian dance and traditional Western theater. One show only at four o'clock tomorrow at the Walton Art Center. Tickets are $15. I wouldn't walk up and expect to get a ticket. I'd go online, waltonartcenter.org. Column B, mm-hmm. music about which you know I know the least. You can go to the King Opera House in Van Buren tomorrow night for a live multimedia concert experience called Beatlemania 64. 7 o'clock tomorrow, tickets start at $25. If you've never been to the King Opera House, tell them about the King Opera House. King Opera House is more than 100 years old. It's, you know, where there have been performances of all kinds. It's ornate. It's... uh, But still, you know, they've kept up with it, so it's very contemporary and can handle any modern show. Then there's Sunday Music at noon Sunday at Terra Studios in Durham, Kiefer Dean Roach and Nick Clark, Mm -hmm. and Squirrel Jam Sunday evening at 5 o'clock at Ozark Folkways in Winslow, and both of those are free. Absolutely free. And then there's Column C, other cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Sunday, 2 o'clock, Fayetteville Public Library, One of my favorite people, Don House, who you know is a photographer, also writes lovely things. And he has a new book out called Letters to Dan, A Philosophical Guide to the Ozarks. If you've never gone and listened to Don House speak, it is fondue for the soul. (laughs) I like that. And this book is, it started out literally as letters to a friend of his, telling him what's going on in Northwest Arkansas. And it continued as, I want to write and I need a muse. I'll write to my friend. And he said he didn't even know if he was going to put photos in it. And then he finally decided he would. It's a beautiful book. So, 2 o'clock Sunday, Fayetteville Public Library. Or, this weekend is Art in Bloom at Crystal Bridges. Florists make beautiful flower arrangements to go with pieces of art. And they're also going to have art making in the studios and book, rare book displays from their library and family activities. It's all weekend through Monday at Crystal Bridges. Tomorrow is also the Kite Festival at Turpentine Creek Wildlife Refuge. Again, if you're new, Turpentine Creek is a sanctuary for big cats and occasional other wild animals that need a home. And every year they have Kite Festival on one of the first Saturdays of spring. And you can go and meet the kitties who will not be out flying kites. No, they will not. Although that would be really fun. No, it would not. You and I have a very different idea of fun. Uh, yes. The last words on my lips before I was eaten by a big cat were here, kitty, kitty. I'd be okay with that. You and I just have different views of how to interact with apex predators. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a good time for me to go sideways and say that Next week, I will be reporting to you from Alaska. Oh, that's right. Stay away from the polar bears, please. It's not the polar bears I'm looking for. It's Bigfoot. Okay. Also tomorrow evening, astronomy night Yeah. at Hobbs State Park. Lecture at 730, viewing at 830. Maybe you'll see a USO. Uh-huh. They already think I'm crazy, uh-huh. Kyle. Uh-huh. We might as well push it. That's a great weekend. I'm going to do a lot of that. I'm seeing Sanctuary City tonight and other items. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Thank you so much. The Elizabeth Richardson Center is needing your help to bust the box. They have a donation drive going through March at any Legacy Bank location or here at KUAF Public Radio. The ERC works to enhance the quality of life for individuals with disabilities in our community. And, you know, we all have our issues with inflation and just everything, but those costs are also passed on to nonprofits, and we, we just really need some extra help. To learn more, ERCINC.org. That's ERCINC.org for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. True crime podcasts often leave listeners conflicted. Is it simply a salacious story that is more entertaining than informational? Or does it seek to inform its audience and offer a perspective on the workings of the justice system? Jason Moon is the host of Bear Brook, a podcast by New Hampshire Public Radio, and his hope is the latter. 
I spoke with Jason recently about the latest season of the podcast, and he says, like season one, it's another murder case from the 1980s in New Hampshire. But it's also a story about uh, true crime storytelling in and of itself. So sort of one thread of of the series is a, is a kind of meta-examination, if you will, of uh, true crime and, and what kind of um, impacts that true crime media can have on, on, on real-life cases. Two major struggles I always think about with any true crime series is the nature of finding a reliable narrator mm. and the concept of certainty. Mm. How did you find yourself dealing with those two things, especially considering the story of Jason Carroll, who is kind of the protagonist of this season? Yeah, that's those are questions that are that lie pretty near the center of of season two. Um, reliable narrators is, is probably I should have used that language. I'm I'm kind of upset that we didn't have this conversation before we finished. Well, before you start season three, we'll touch base. There we go. There we go. But yeah, that's that's just it. You know, are there re- reliable narrators? Can there be? I first became interested in this case because I learned that another true crime podcast was going going to be covering it here in New Hampshire, which is a little bit of a spoiler in the series. But um, I I was curious to see, like, well, what if we watch what happens when another true crime, when some true crime media is made? Let's, like, follow the the impacts of it as they ripple out. Um, But one unexpected um, byproduct of that for me was that it gave me a whole new framing for for everything in the in the series, which was it, it kind of put everything in the terms of of storytelling and storytellers, because here was a new podcast who was doing who was going to tell a story about this case, but then it it started to seem to me that like oh well that's kind of all anyone ever did with this case all the actors involved the people who were uh, confessing under in in these lengthy interrogations, the state in compiling its evidence for for prosecution, you know, emphasizing certain things, leaving other details out, the defense in in crafting its own narrative. It were, they were all just kind of like almost like different versions of the same event, the same or the same set of events. And so, yeah, that's one thing I really want people who listen to season two to um, be confronted with and think about because, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, a verdict, a jury verdict in a, in a criminal trial is really kind of like whose story is believed, you know? And that that's really what equals a verdict. And then, and then we sort of think of that verdict as the truth at that point. And one of the things I want to I want to show you in this series is how kind of just to strip away some of the the mythos and the the pomp and the the aura that kind of can surround the criminal justice system and you know a, a jury verdict or the rulings of a judge or or what is you know put onto a a court document you know I think often we too quickly too easily look at those things as like absolutes and well if it was if if it was decided this then that's then that corresponds like 100% to like the literal events that happened in reality but when you go back and you look at the process for how we got to that point and you realize that it's actually it's just kind of like we don't like really know but like these people told one story these people told another story and this other group of people like thought one was like kind of more convincing than the other, but they sort of didn't fully buy it, but whatever, that was the verdict. It just kind of, to me, it was instructive um, in the sense of kind of like undressing the, the, the structures of the criminal legal system in a way that made them seem like just more human, just more like, oh, these are just, we're just, these are just people. And, you know, maybe we're messing up in all, in all these ways that we don't really like fully appreciate or realize can happen. A trope of true crime storytelling of any kind is to hold tightly to a piece of relevant information that changes the way the story plays out. Had you known it earlier, it would have changed the way you understood the dynamics of this story. And you point out that piece of information in this season very early. 
Why did you think it was important to do that? Yeah, well, that was one of those moments where I realized that that was a trick. What you just described was it was a trick that was used by people involved in the case itself. It wasn't just a thing that a TV producer or a journalist was doing. You know, there there are multiple situations uh, in this story where it could be argued that that's what a the people who are actually in, you know I don't want to give too much away here, but speaking of this sort of <laughs> ironically meta, but yeah, a, a detail is withheld, uh, and there's a dramatic reveal of that, and I was like, oh, so it's not this is not just the the province of like true crime podcasters here, you know, this is something that's been that goes on in the system itself, you know, and here we're talking about the late '80s in in New Hampshire, and so for the same reasons that I wanted. As a storyteller, try to be careful about that kind of thing because I don't want to overly manipulate your perception of things. You know, I'm conscious of, you know, the, the listener's uh, level of trust in me as a narrator. I don't I want to, you know, I don't want to endanger that by, like, yanking you around and being like, just kidding, you know. But then once you realize that that's happening inside the system itself, it's like, okay, well, let's let's interrogate that. And so we did that in the very first episode because I wanted to sort of prime the listener to listen for it again, but done by other people, by characters in the story, not by, not by me. So it's a sort of like heads up. It's like a reverse foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like here, here it comes. You can hear more of my conversation with Jason Moon during Weekend Ozarks at Large this Sunday, beginning at 9 a.m. right here on KUAF. Bear Brook is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for KUAF is provided by Little Wing Productions, presenting An Evening with Amy Grant at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs, April 1st. Hits include Simple Things, Takes a Little Time, Lucky One, and more. Tickets available at tickets.thundertix.com. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, April 8th at Walton Arts Center with Battle of the Bands. Sona teams up with the Fayetteville Jazz Collective to create a hybrid orchestra jazz band for an evening of genre-defying music. Featuring guest vocalist Janine Latrice Perez. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. It's not just professionals who create podcasts and NPR's Student Podcast Challenge is an encouragement for younger people to develop a podcast. The challenge is now in its fifth year, and there are categories for middle school, high school, and college students. This month, I talked with Jana Ujung Lee and Steve Drummond, two of the people behind the NPR Student Podcast Challenge. Steve says five years in, the podcasts keep getting better. Students are getting really good at this. They're really, really uh, learning over the years how to get better at the podcast. And the way I say that is the first year we got a lot of podcasts that sound like the students had uh, recorded their story in the lunchroom or in a busy classroom. And there was so much background noise and banging and clanking going on. And every year the podcasts have gotten pro progressively better. What hasn't changed is the enthusiasm that students bring to podcasting and, and the passion they bring to telling whatever the story is, whether it's a story about tater tots or a story about uh, their favorite pets or a story about what it's like to live on a, on a native reservation in Montana. We've, um, we've heard really, really great stories and it's been really, really fun to bring them and put them on a the radio. There's been a lot of, a lot of the podcasts are about, and of course you would expect this, I think from, from young people figuring out who they are and where they do or don't fit in. Very much so. And those have been, again, some of the most emotional and passionate stories. I can recall a student uh, uh, who has autism uh, becoming a finalist in our very first year. And in the second year, there was a student who was deaf. We've had incarcerated students from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We've had adult students in their 30s and 40s from Washington, D.C. And talking really passionately about where they are and who they are in the world. That's that's something that young people especially are really struggling with, and it's something they've really explored in their podcasts. Yeah, and I also want to add that we've gotten these entries from Bentonville, Arkansas as well, including we had two finalists um, from your local station in the first year of the contest, including one that was very much on theme with this. Um, it was a student who had been moving around a lot and telling 
her stories about like her, what she was seeing in Arkansas that she wasn't seeing at home. I remember it was called the immigrant stories in Arkansas. And I was like, wow, this like huge Walmart and these little things that we may not be thinking about, but in her own voice. So I think there's also those precious moments where it helps us see things in a different way. I was like, oh, like things I would have never thought about. Um, but it's just delightful to hear. Yeah. The topics can range for just about anything. There are a few rules, including one is that it's an eight minute limit. Mm-hmm. Between three to eight minutes. Yes, correct. There are two categories as ages, younger students and older students. And then later this year, there will be one for college students. Yes, 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 yes. Um, to add to that, so we have the grand prize for one middle school grand prize winner, one high school grand prize winner. And this year for our student podcast challenge, we're adding the first ever thematic award for the best podcast in mental health. Um, so we will be awarding one middle and one high school students for that as well. And yes, later this year, we will have the college contest. Steve, do you want to talk about the timeline for that one? It'll begin kind of with the semester, Kyle, uh, so that students who are taking a podcasting class will have enough time to some, maybe submit their final project uh, for the contest. Or if not, if they're just doing a podcast on their own, which has been the story in the first couple of years of the college competition. So we're trying to make it as available and sort of as accessible to many co- as many college students as we can. And we'll close it, Janet, in December, the the entries will be due? Yes, at the end of the calendar year. So students get all the way through December 31st to submit. So if you're busy doing finals, you can take a second to submit it um, during Christmas break. There, there are many helpful hints from how to warm up your voice and how to get better sound at NPR.org. But what suggestion would you give to a potential participant or maybe a teacher who hears from someone, well... I don't know if I've got what it takes to tell this story or to do a podcast. How do you how do you give that last final nudge like, go ahead, do it? Oh, Kyle, that's a great question. And we've heard from so many teachers who thought that there was going to be a whole lot of uh, fancy equipment or expensive uh, microphones mm-hmm. and, re- and studios involved. And it isn't really. It can be done very simply with a cell phone and a laptop computer. And also, the the, the thing we really... Neat. It doesn't take a lot of radio expertise or um, uh, knowledge of sound recording. What it really takes is a good story. We th- we hope that teachers and students will start with the desire to tell a story and um, and go from there. And that's those are proven each year to be some of the most compelling and interesting podcasts we've heard. There are a lot of them that are very technologically advanced, and that of course helps. But really, it begins with the story. Yeah, and I also want to add many of our favorite entries in the past and our winners have very often been like first-time podcasters, their first ever podcast they made in school. Um, So I get that you can feel nervous to submit and share something with such a big audience, but I really just recommend any educator who's helping their student working on this podcast, just give it a try and you never know where it'll land as well. Adding on to some of the resources you mentioned, Kyle, we actually launched a new website or a web page with all these resources in one page, which you can find on npr.org slash student podcast challenge 2023. So our new page is called Sound Advice, NPR's one-stop shop for podcasting resources. So if you want to play anything for your class or want any curriculum advice for any educators, we have videos, our own podcasts on how to make a podcast um, and different web pages for curriculum guides as well. So that's all on our website. So please check it out. Finally, in this age of seemingly a new streaming service launched every week and, I don't know, YouTube channels in the seven figures, what is the power? What is the potential of audio and audio only? The thing that I've heard each year in the five years we've done this contest is, and you probably know this from your own work, Kyle, when you interview students, when a grown-up talks to students, they tend to speak very formally and they're very stilted or they tend to give one-word answers. You know, how was school today? Good. You know, uh, do you like your teacher? Yes. But when we (laughs) hear students talking in their own voices and talking to their peers or their friends or their classmates, we get a very different sound and a very different kind of storytelling. And it's every year. It's surprising. It's joyful. And it's really, really something that we can learn a lot from. Yeah. And one thing we also hear from teachers a lot is you never know what your student will share with you once you put a mic in front of them, whether it's something deeply personal that teachers even never thought about or something that students like experiences that they haven't shared with anyone else. There's something also special about we also get entries from students who go to like virtual schools, but um, the quality of your work isn't affected by what equipment you have as much. 
as Steve mentioned, like during the pandemic, we also got a lot of entries that were created through Zoom or like Zoom collaboration. So there's a little bit more flexibility on how you can put this together, too. You mentioned the pandemic and it made me think five years of doing this. Students have been through a lot in five (laughs) years. Yeah. And that's what led to us to our mental health special kind of mental health challenge this year. We've heard so much about how students are struggling and children, young people around the country are struggling with their mental health. And we've had in the past couple of years during the pandemic, we've had some very powerful podcast students talking about the ways in which they were struggling. So we decided to open it up and sort of invite students to explore those topics in our podcast. And I'll be really interested in hearing what what they have to say. Steve Drummond and Janet Ujung Lee are two people behind the NPR Student Podcast Challenge and spoke with me via Zoom earlier this month. Much more about the challenge can be found by following the tabs at npr.org. The deadline for middle and high school student podcast entries is April 28th. In the background is alto saxophonist Bobby Watson playing Why Not? And I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from Bobby Watson as well as Chet Baker, Justin Vasquez, Paul Desmond, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, and much more on this week's edition of Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz tonight at 10 on 91.3 KUAF and tomorrow from 11 until 1 p.m., on KUAF3. Theater Squared's production of Sanctuary City continues through April 9th. The play, written by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Martina Mayoke, centers on two undocumented teenagers and their relationship with each other and their adopted country. This week, we talked with the actors from the production, Anna Miramontes, who plays G, and Brendan Irby, who plays B. We usually have these conversations with actors before the play is open, but this time, we were fortunate enough to talk with Anna and Brendan after several shows had been staged. And I asked them about the rapport that's obvious on stage and off. We had to build that from the beginning because it's a very intense play that deals with a lot of very serious stuff. And I feel that our director from the beginning, before we even started uh, rehearsals, we just got together, got a beer, and we he was really uh, interested in creating the environment, like a safe environment, so that we could tackle this play because... As I mentioned, it has very intense topics. And I feel that if you don't have like a safe room and like a room where people can actually develop this kind of relationship, yeah. it's going to be hard, a hard run. Mm-hmm. I, safety is the key word. Yeah. Just just because like um, having to do it for so long, like it's, it's a long run and doing it over and over and over again can be exhausting. Um, so like being able to like lean on someone during the whole process is important. And then also for, for the performance, like to have a casual rapport and to be comfortable off stage, like it only aids you on stage. It it makes the relationship more real, more exciting. So when you went with the director to get the beer, um, delicious beer, (laughs) (laughs) did you just talk? about yourselves? Did you talk about characters? Did you talk about the situations that so many people like the characters you are in the play find themselves in? It was, it was casual, right? Very casual. Yes, it was more like, okay, this is the first time that we're together. So who are you? Like, what have you been doing? What's been, like, your journey? So it was more like getting to know each other as humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next day in rehearsal, in table work is when we went uh, deeply into the script for like a week. We did it for like a week. But yeah, that first meeting, it was just like, who are you? As a person. What's your heart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the the baseline. We're all people at a place of work just trying to make make a piece of theater, right? Baseline human. And we need to know each other before we do this like intense work in a workplace. And then we build on that. Then we build character and story and in how we're going to tell the story. What has changed for you about your work as the run has gone on? Do things change? Are there subtle things that for you change or get revealed? Yes. Because this is such a dense script, I'm going to keep repeating it. I feel that the more that we do it, the more that we find like those secrets or those like tiny things that are hidden in the dialogue uh, and through playing with different actions, we keep the blocking and everything the same, but I feel that doing it 
many times allows you to understand the play more and to play with other things that make more sense uh, that maybe you didn't think on the first day of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a treat. It's really a treat to have like such a smart play like this one. And then every night you get to discover something different. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like a little detective. Like, ever, like you know, you I'm just. Are a <laughs> thank you. Yeah. But I'm just like solving the mystery of this play every night, and like something new will happen, or like Anna will do something different, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that totally like makes more sense to me. So then I get to respond to it, mm-hmm. and and it, it evolves in that sense. And I feel that also like the audience having different audiences help us discover like new things that are funny or things that are not funny that are very serious or uh yes just like different audiences help us discover even more things um Mm -hmm. yes ever evolving it's really exciting thing about theater i want to ask you about the script here in a second but but you mentioned that anna might do something and you respond to it differently and that's happening in real time in front of us oh yeah and how much in character do you have to be then because I would be so tempted if I did something different. I'd go, oh, wow, that's cool. You, <laughs> you've got to stay. I got to be right there with her. And, that, and like, that's the thing about safety and, and like, or that's a part of the safety of it all is like, Anna has to trust that I am right there with her, that if she's going to make a different choice, I'm, I'm responding to it. So it stays, it stays live theater. It's not, uh, it's not just a blueprint of what we did in the room. It's, it's actually happening in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. But that sounds so much like what's actually happening for the characters, too, because it's so important to each of you to trust the other in Sanctuary City, right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Which, is, which is the brilliance of, of the, the play itself, of the directing style to put us... Uh, we're always in that situation in a way that the characters are in. Not that we aren't actors. Like, it's, it's, no. all, it's all pretend, but for, for two hours, it... Yes, and also I feel that the way that the design is supporting us and the stage is supporting us, like, once we enter that space, even though we're actors, like, we fully, like, become those characters and whatever choices come from us are always informed by what we created with this character. So even though I may come up with something different, it's not Anna's choice, but B's choice because everything has to be in alignment with that character study and table work and all this stuff that we discovered in the room. So um, yes, it's really cool to see how these characters develop and how we embrace who they are even more and how those inform like new actions that we may be playing. Because once again, the blocking will stay the same, but the way that you go um, at one line can be different based on what you're receiving from your partner Mm -hmm. on stage. Uh, I don't want to overthink this, but do you ever think about the fact that, you know, we're here in the middle of the country, Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and while this Northwest Arkansas's population has diversified over the last 25 years, there's a good chance that a theater squared audience is mostly white on any given night. And may know someone who has dealt with some of these issues, most certainly knows greater uh, facts about these issues, but might not be as personal for them as it might be if you were performing in some other place. Have you thought about that? Yes, we have thought about it and we have seen it because, you know, we're so close to the audience that we can we can see reactions. We can see who stays in the room and who leaves. Uh but we're very excited about that and the fact that we can bring different demographics and have them all sitting in this one room. And the possibility of that sparking conversation is just uh, more powerful than the possibility of it not being received well or anything like that. So the hope of it creating something is bigger than the fear of yeah, being in a place that may not feel as comfortable talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I agree. I agree. It is the possibility. Because if we have like an audience of what, like 150 people mm-hmm. and, and 10 people leave like uh, with their eyes a little bit wider, 
I mean, we we did our job. And then if 50 people leave going, I don't know, but at least I had fun, then we still did our job. Mm-hmm. Brennan Irby and Anna Miramontes are the actors in the Theater Square production of Sanctuary City, written by Martina Mayok. The play continues at T2 through April 9th. Our conversation took place earlier this week at the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Leila Faldil. Morning Edition from NPR News makes mornings more bearable. Scientists at the University of Arizona came face to snout with a satellite picture of what looks like a teddy bear etched on the red planet's surface. And we always pause for a little joy. The puppy bus is run by a local dog walking and training service called Mo Mountain Mutts. Join us for the show that never forgets to have fun. All right, I'm done with these puns. Listen every weekday. Morning edition, every weekday morning from 5 to 9 on KUAF. Monday on Ozarks at Large, documenting for the entirety of the World Wide Web where people are buried. The cemeteries that are here are just so close, and I like taking the photographs. So it's just something to, to occupy my time and, and just enjoy having fun doing it. A frequent local contributor to Find a Grave on Mondays, Ozarks at Large, noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can always find our stories and complete shows at OzarksAtLarge.com. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. KUAF is giving away VIP tickets to the 2023 Rocklahoma Music Festival, held September 1st through the 3rd, 2023, in Pryor, Oklahoma. Bands include Buck Cherry, P.O.D., Skid Row, and more. Winners will be announced on Friday, August 25th, during Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for complete lineup and registration. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Vianne, Oklahoma. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to the show today included Michael Tilley and Becca Martin-Brown. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We had assistance today from the news team at KUAR in Little Rock. All right. uh, Big weekend. It's not going to be raining the whole weekend. Yes, that's good news. I know it seems like it, (laughs) but it will not be. Uh, Remind you that tomorrow morning... On Weekend Edition with Scott Simon, he'll be mm-hmm. talking with Sylvia Pajoli. Yes. That ending her 41-year career with yes. NPR, and what's next for her? Mm-hmm. Hopefully uh, it's some rest and relaxation for a moment. Yeah, one would hope. <laughs> um, and I hope I hope she gets a chance to talk about uh, she, I want us to say it was Rhode Island where she was born, mm. and she first went to Europe on a Fulbright scholarship. Oh, yeah. And that changed her life. Yeah. I don't know if they'll have time to talk about that or not. But that conversation between Sylvia Pajoli and uh, Scott Simon, Scott Simon, weekend edition, which is seven to nine tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make you listen to the whole two hours because I don't know where <laughs> in that two hours. Uh, let's see. And the Pea Ridge National Military Park tomorrow is presenting a special program. Vinnie Ream, artist, sculptor, socialite, and icon of the equal rights movement. That's tomorrow night at the Pea Ridge National Military Park at six. And tomorrow, weather permitting, the Kite Festival at Turpentine Creek in Eureka Springs. Mm. And the Art Collective Gallery in Rogers will have their opening reception for their new uh, collection called 4D. Not a shortage of things to do this oh, time of no. year. Oh, no. So much. And you can go get rocks. That's and true. Raise money, help raise money for the Perryville. Uh, it's a win win. That's right. What are you doing this weekend? This weekend, uh, we are closing in on uh, on my wife having a child, mm. so we are doing an abundance of home projects, probably until the little fellow shows up. All right. Well, better you than me. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I think I, I don't think I'll ask you to help. I'll be back with you Sunday morning at nine for weekend Ozarks at Large. We have another full week of brand new daily editions of Ozarks at Large, beginning Monday at noon from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Be well.